still in Hebrews 11. If you'd look there, Hebrews 11 is uh, the faith chapter filled with stories of faith, stories about very different people in very different situations who faced very different challenges but succeeded in the same way, by faith. Last week and the week before, we saw how the faith of Abraham, Abraham's the father of the faithful, was tested when he left the life that he knew and launched into a future he didn't know. In today's text, we look at Moses. Moses similarly, similarly leaves a secure present for an uncertain future. But unlike Abraham, Moses eventually returned to his past life, but he did so as a spiritually renewed man. It was a double challenge. And we can learn principles from his life that will help us trust God with our uncertain futures and our imperfect pasts. Look at uh, verses 23 through 27. I'll read those out loud. You can follow along, and your Bibles are up on the screen. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He preserved because he saw him who is invisible. Before we dig into that text, I want you to notice a word in verse 26. The word is reward. There's a reward attached to living a faith life. Moses was looking ahead to his reward. The biblical writers never shy away from mentioning rewards. It is Impossible, our author told us earlier in this chapter, for people to come to God if they don't believe that he rewards, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The primary Greek word translated reward appears 28 times in the New Testament. There are other words, uh, synonyms as well. But 28 times in the New Testament, it's hard to overemphasize the biblical writer's emphasis on rewards. To those suffering mistreatment, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. He tells his followers, Your Father, who sees the good deeds you do in secret, will reward you. Or how about this one? I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. It's as if God is making up reasons to give people rewards. A cup of water. I'll reward that. In the very last chapter of the Bible, Jesus is still talking rewards. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he's done. That's just a small sampling. And that just taken from the words of Jesus, and there are many others just among Jesus' sayings. And there's a great deal more on the subject in the scriptures. The life of faith will be richly rewarded. Though 
I should probably add that a person who doesn't love God won't love the reward. Faith will be rewarded, but faith does not come naturally to us. It comes to us as a gift. It remains with us as an obligation, and it never ceases to be a challenge. The Trappist monk Thomas Merton prayed this way. My Lord God, think of this, the challenge of faith. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I don't see the road ahead of me. I can't know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will doesn't mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope I'll never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are with me. And you'll never leave me to face my perils alone. Faith like that pleases the God who rewards those who seek him. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. We saw last week how Abraham's faith, discovered late in life, led to a heritage of faith in his family for generations. There's something similar with Moses. This man of great faith had parents who were people of faith. They left him a legacy of faith, a trust fund, if you will. The kind that every parent should leave his or her children. Some parents leave their kids money. That's a good thing. Others leave their kids a legacy of service. That's an even better thing. Some leave a legacy of knowledge, including Bible knowledge, and that is rich indeed. But nothing compares to leaving your children a legacy of faith. Notice the opposition between faith and fear here. Moses' parents, verse 23, acted by faith, that's one side of the equation, and did not fear the king's edict, that's the other side. Moses himself, down in verse 27, left Egypt by faith, that's one side of the equation, not fearing the king's anger, that's the other side. Faith and fear are like the poles of a magnetic field. They repel each other, but they attract everything else into their sphere. Fear pulls the things going on in our life into its field. And then we have more and more things to worry about. Faith pulls the things going on in our life into its field. And then we have more and more opportunities to trust God. But faith is stronger than fear. When Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, knew they were going to have a baby, suddenly the king's edict requiring the immediate termination of newborn Jewish boys came into view. Would that edict be drawn into the field of faith or of fear? If fear, then they would obey the king. By the way, when we read they did not fear the king, what that means is they didn't do what he said. It doesn't mean they didn't have any emotional response. Anxiety, it means they didn't act on it. 
If the king's edict was drawn into the, the field of faith, they would protect the child. They protected the, the child. Now, let me ask you, when new challenges enter your life, probably some of you had a new challenge enter your life this week, is it more likely to be drawn into the field of faith or the field of fear? I think that's an important question for us to ask ourselves. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It took faith for Moses to realize his true identity. By faith, this happened. It took faith for him to realize who he really was. The same could be said of all of us, of all of God's children. Now think about it. When Moses was three months old, he was adopted into an Egyptian family. And not just an Egyptian family, the royal family. His mother was the king's daughter. He grew up in the royal court. There were great privileges associated with his position. But beyond all that, there was a special and powerful identity. The text says that it was faith that prompted Moses to refuse that identity, to renounce it. It was a faith issue, and it was a challenge to choose to identify with the people of God and disidentify with the royal family meant a loss of power and prestige and privilege, and it meant an enormous loss of income. Many was going to have to work for a living. I think Moses faced those realities, and he reasoned through them with faith. But there was another issue that must have been even more profound that he had to face. To disidentify with his Egyptian family would hurt people he loved. After all they had done for him, they would feel totally betrayed. And who could blame them? They wouldn't understand. The life of faith is often misunderstood. Notice that it wasn't only after Moses, it, w- it was only after Moses had grown up that he was capable of taking a stand for his true identity. That's the way it is for Christians, too. Christians need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of God before they are ready to disidentify with their old life and identify themselves with Christ. Before that, they, like Moses, are simply not capable of making that choice. Some people don't make that choice because they don't grow up. With his new identity in place, Moses was able to make difficult choices. Look at verse 25. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. That was a tough choice. That would have been an impossible choice had Moses not disidentified with his past and identified himself with God's people. Notice the nature of this choice. Moses could either identify himself as one of the people of God or, and in Greek the word or is actually present, the NIV translates it as than, or he could choose the pleasure of sin for a short time. I think he saw the nature of the choice clearly, and he understood its ramifications. If I make this choice, here's what I can expect. 
Faith enables us to make choices that honor God's purpose for our lives. See, in the end, life is not about what we feel, but about what we choose. So let me ask you, are you satisfied with the choices that you are currently making? I'm not talking about past choices. We all have past choices we regret. But are you satisfied with the choices you are currently making in your life? Are they faith choices or are they fear choices? William Alexander poses this question. Think about this. If you were doomed to live the same life over and over again for eternity, okay, what was that movie? Groundhog Day. Think of the movie Groundhog Day. Would you choose the life you're living now? And then he goes on. If the answer is no, then why are you living the life you're living now? Stop making excuses and do something about it. The good news is that it's not too late to do something about it. We can make choices today that will bring us, or at least begin to bring us, back in line with God's purpose. Anyone, anyone at all, can make the right choice today. Now, it may have been easier to make the right choice a year ago than it is today. You may have made it much more difficult in the past year to make the right choice. It may have been easier to make the right choice yesterday than it is today. But here's the thing. It will be easier to make the right choice today than it will be tomorrow. The Bible emphasizes that today is the day, the day to trust God, the day of salvation. Moses had a choice to make. He could choose the people of God forever or the pleasures of sin for a short time. His choice was time-sensitive. Every sin has its period of pleasure or better enjoyment. Whether avarice, gluttony, anger, lust, perhaps the sin that tempted Moses was one of these. Perhaps it was idolatry, which was almost unavoidable in the Egyptian royal court. We're not told what the sin was, only that the enjoyment would be short-lived. The pleasure of sin always has an expiration date. Sin's enjoyment seems so immediate, while the reward from God seems so far off. But sin, as our author told us in chapter 3, is deceitful. It promises much, but it pays back little. It promises enjoyment, but it hides the expiration date. Now, faith makes choices. Understand, that's what faith does. This chapter makes that point again and again. Faith is no loiterer. It doesn't just sit around and feel religious. It chooses and it acts. And its choices, as we saw last week, are not blind, they are reasoned. They're calculated. That would be an excellent translation of verse 26. He calculated disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. But you need to know what happens after faith calculates. Faith calculates. It makes its choice. It chooses God's will. But once faith has reasoned and chosen a course of action, it 
often has to face questions and doubts, and sometimes immediately. It's not enough to begin with faith. We must persevere in faith. Moses chose to disidentify with his adoptive mother and her people and identify with God's people, knowing that would mean mistreatment. His faith calculated the cost, and he thought it was worthwhile. Now, we do the same kind of thing. God tells us something. He tells us, try again on your marriage. Don't give up on it. And faith chooses obedience. Or God tells us to give generously to the church. And faith calculates it as worthwhile and begins to do so. Or God tells us to get involved in a ministry. And we offer ourselves, albeit with fear and trembling, we act on faith. So far, so good. But then faith endures trials. For Moses, the trial was the wrath of the king. And not just the wrath of the king. It was 40 years in the back of nowhere. For the married man or woman, it's a spouse's rejection. For the person who gives, it's unexpected bills. For the person in ministry, it's time away from other activities. All of us experience the desire to go easy on ourselves and turn back and give up. Sometimes the pressure is just so great. It would be easy to turn back. It is hard to go on. Who can possibly win? The answer, the person who sees him who is invisible. Look at verse 27. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. Seeing him who was invisible is a gift and a grace but it's also a responsibility. It's not something we can ever do apart from God's help, but it is something we must do with God's help. We won't see him if we're not looking. It's a grace, but it's also a skill at which we can improve. You can get better at seeing the invisible. When I first moved here 24 years ago, I had never hunted for a morel mushroom. I'd never eaten a morel mushroom. But my friend Larry Langworthy called me up and said, hey, come with me, we're going to go morel mushroom hunting. So he led me to a place where he expected to find morels. He told me to look around a certain tree, and then he made fun of me when I almost stepped on them. Larry could see a mushroom from 50 feet away. I couldn't see them when I was standing right on top of them. I'm better at that now. Not like him, I'll never be like that. But I'm better. I've trained my eye a bit. I know better now where to look. The same kind of thing happens to those who earnestly look for God. They begin slowly and always only partially to see him. But they train their eye a bit. They get better at knowing where to look. And they see him who is invisible. Have you looked, here's an important question for you to ask yourself, have you looked for the invisible one in the situation in which you find yourself right now? Perhaps it's a health crisis. Perhaps relationship trouble. Or a financial shortfall. Or perhaps everything's going just fine. 
that may prove the most difficult time for people to see the one who is invisible. Ask God for grace to see and then start looking for the invisible. It may take time, but keep at it. It's the only way you will ever persevere in the life of faith. Now, what's the take-home here? Let me mention three things to you. First, did you notice the time frame of these events? These things happened before and decades before Moses had his burning bush experience with God. His initial faith did not come from that experience. It led to it. People sometimes think they would be able to trust God if only he would give them some special spiritual experience, a vision, an ecstasy. But here, and often in our own lives, just the opposite is true. We don't trust God because we have some great experience. We have some great experience because we trust God. If we get that wrong, we'll always be looking for experience and not for him. And that is spiritually disastrous. Second, the meaning of your life is not summed up in your intentions, your feelings, your desires, but in your choices. What is it that you're choosing? You need to know that your life is being formed by those choices. If you had to live the life formed by your current choices for eternity... Would you still be making the same choices? If not, then you need God's help and grace to make different ones. And you'll have his help and grace. But you must ask him and trust him. Finally, Moses had to disown. That's how the verb refused in verse 24 is often translated. In fact, it's the word used of disowning Christ by Peter. Moses had to disown his old identity. The Egyptian son of Pharaoh's daughter was not the real Moses. It was a false self. Similarly, we must disown or disidentify with our false self. The false self is an illusion. It's an image we present the way we want to think of ourselves and want others to think about ourselves. The false self is all about security. And I'm not talking about in the sense of avoiding risk. People who dive out of airplanes and do all those crazy things still have a false self. It's all about security in the sense of securing a certain self-image. The false self gets angry when that image is challenged. Or else it runs away and hides. If you want to unmask the false self, which is very difficult for us to do, you can't look right at yourself. You can look at other things. Discover what makes you defensive. That thing you always get defensive about, that's a clue. Look at what makes you touchy. Ask what it is that you're compulsive about. The thing you must have the way you want it to be. That's often a prop for the false self. Because the false self is all about securing itself. Here's the point I'm trying to get to with all this. Because it's always about securing itself, it will never be about faith. It is incapable of faith. Faith is only possible to people who are acting out of their real self, their true identity. So what is your true identity? 
Let me mention a few things to you. If you have Jesus Christ, you are God's beloved child. That's your true identity. You are a priest with good work to do. That's your true identity. You are a saint. A saint who sins, no doubt. But a saint, nonetheless. That's your true identity. Though you sin, you're a forgiven person. Your debt of sin has been paid. That's your true identity. You're a new creation. A new kind of person on earth. One united to Christ himself. You and he are inseparable. That's your true identity. And those are just a few things that biblical writers say about our true identity. So let me ask, what do your choices over the past couple weeks say about you? Have those choices been consistent with who you really are in Christ? Have you been acting out of your true identity? When faith is impossible to you, I can't tell you how many times people have said something like, I'm trying to trust God, I just can't, I can't, I just can't. It probably means you're not acting out of your true self. When sinful desires overwhelm you, you're not acting out of your true self. When you hate others, you're not acting out of your true self. The self that's united to God. Now what can you do? First of all, you can ask God for help. The desire to please him pleases him. That's a good place to start. Then disidentify with your false self, that counterfeit image that is nothing other than an idol. And choose to act as if what the Bible says about you is true. It is true. You are forgiven, loved, and wanted by God. You are important to him, a priest and his servant, a child in his house. You are his dearly loved son or daughter with forgiveness for the past and a reward for the future. Act as though that were true. Act like that person in your marriage, in your giving, in your relationships. Act like the person that God says you are. That's faith. Now one last word. All those things I just said about you that are true, are not true if you don't have Jesus Christ. The new life springs from our union with him. And if you've not been united to him by faith, that's the place you must start. Now let's pray. I pray that you'll speak to us about who we are in you. And if we're not in you, O God, by your grace and mercy, show it to us, even though it be painful. And grant us your help and grace to live like the people you've made us to be through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Stand together.